On this episode of Nightwire, we'll discuss the influence of Rod Serling's monumental series The Twilight Zone on the horror genre. It was midnight, bringing darkness instead of light. Great. Blood-sucking pretty much. Well, sometimes that is better. There's no turning back. On September 22, 1959, television interviewer Mike Wallace sits across from three-time Emmy Award-winning writer Rod Serling and says, "Be obviously working so hard on the Twilight Zone that, in essence, for the time being and for the foreseeable future, you've given up on writing anything important for television. Serling stumbles over his response. He's not really sure what to say. He's kind of processing what he's just heard. Although surviving footage of the interview is grainy and distorted, you can almost see the muscles in his face tighten as he clenches his jaw. It isn't the first time he's heard such criticism of his upcoming project, The Twilight Zone. In fact, the general consensus is that Rod Serling has given up hung up his role as a distinguished young visionary in the blooming field of television writing, and will instead live out his days barely a step above a sideshow host as far as Hollywood is concerned. It simply isn't possible to tell smart, socially conscious stories through the lens of science fiction and horror. The interview ends with a slow zoom on Serling against a black backdrop. His eyes look down, his lips are tight, and cigarette smoke billows around him. Mike Wallace recites his scripted outro, summarizing Serling's past achievements as an Emmy Award winner and a young Hollywood socialite. He doesn't even bother to mention The Twilight Zone. In a post-apocalyptic world, a cynical bookworm smashes his glasses on a set of concrete stairs. A beautiful woman awakens in a hospital bed surrounded by hideous, pig-faced doctors. A man, glancing out an airplane window, sees something on the wing. The Twilight Zone has become so deeply ingrained in American culture that it's almost comical to think that there were ever doubts about the quality of Rod Serling's work on the show. It has been parodied by The Simpsons, adapted into one of the highest-rated pinball machines of all time, and stands tall above Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida, in the form of Disney World's Tower of Terror attraction. The Twilight Zone is everywhere. I even remember reading Serling's script for The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street in my fifth grade English class, years before I ever watched the show. It was my first exposure to The Twilight Zone, and it immediately piqued my interest. Of course, with impact comes imitation, and The Twilight Zone has seen its fair share of copycat programs over the years. The Outer Limits is arguably the most notable, replicating the twist endings and 60s sci-fi appeal of The Twilight Zone. Each episode feeling like an hour-long drive-in movie in glorious black and white. 
And while the Outer Limits would go on to be influential in its own way, it replaced much of Serling's social commentary with action, aliens, and dark supernatural forces working against heroic protagonists. Later, Tales from the Crypt would bring anthologized genre storytelling into the MTV era, combining the macabre style of those pre-code 50s comics from which it took its name with the fast-paced visuals of a 90s music video. More recently, Black Mirror brought cautionary speculative tales into the modern age, replacing Serling's atomic bomb allegories with the dangers of cell phones and Twitter. Despite Mike Wallace's 1959 claim that Serling's days of important television writing were over, his work on The Twilight Zone proved to be not only an important contribution to the medium of television, but an integral part of the American zeitgeist of the post-war 60s. While The Twilight Zone is most commonly cited as a classic of the sci-fi genre, and of course it is, there's no doubt about the fact that the show often towed the fine line between science fiction and horror, with many episodes fully crossing over into pure terror and fear. These excursions into the darker corners of the Twilight Zone would go on to play a huge part in the development of horror through the 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to some of the most acclaimed horror films today. On this episode of Nightwire, what I want to do is look back at some of those important episodes and examine their influence on the horror genre through the decades. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Automatonophobia is described as a fear of objects or figures meant to imitate the characteristics of human beings. It's the reason wax museums freak us out and why department store mannequins always seem off once the lights have gone out. It's what makes dolls creepy. When I was a kid, I was terrified of dummies and dolls. I remember one Christmas, my sister got a doll that would talk and complain when you didn't feed it using the plastic food it came with. When the initial excitement over the doll died down, it was exiled to that place in our house where all toys go to die, the basement. Only my parents never took the batteries out, and through the central air ducts in our house, you could hear it down there at night, talking in the dark. While the Twilight Zone's episode, The Living Doll, certainly wasn't the first creepy doll story, it was definitely one of the most memorable. Supposedly written in just one day by Twilight Zone regulars Jerry Soule and Charles Beaumont, remember that name, the episode introduces us to a man named Eric Streeter, a father struggling with his relationship with his stepdaughter, Christy. And when Christie's favorite doll, Talking Tina, begins tormenting Eric with threats only he can hear, 
it throws an already dysfunctional family deeper into a chaotic downward spiral. Talking Tina, voiced by June Foray of Rocky and Bullwinkle fame, was based on the popular Chatty Cathy toy produced by Mattel during the early 60s. It was a doll that revolutionized the concept of the talking pull string toy, and during the 60s featured a voice also provided by June Foray, making the living doll episode all the more real. The killer toy narrative is one still being used today in major studio horror films like Annabelle, and of course everyone's favorite killer doll, Chucky, was greatly influenced by the episode, drawing especially on the elements of paranoia and disbelief, with Andy, much like Eric, struggling to convince those around him that his innocent plaything has a dark secret. Talking Tina wasn't the first time visitors of the Twilight Zone developed a case of automatonophobia. During the show's third season, viewers met a sinister ventriloquist dummy by the name of Willie in an episode appropriately titled The Dummy. Much like the character Eric in The Living Doll, no one believes alcoholic ventriloquist Jerry Etherson when he says something is wrong with his dummy. He tries to change up his act. But Willie has other ideas about who should be calling the shots. Like Talking Tina, Willie was not the first of his kind. 1945's anthology horror film Dead of Night features its own story of a ventriloquist dummy with a life of its own named Hugo. The film was a big influence on Serling's adaptation of the short story by Lee Polk, and is a classic in its own right, one I'd recommend to all horror fans. There was also The Glass Eye, a 1957 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, in which a woman falls in love with a famous ventriloquist, only to discover that things are not always what they seem when it comes to a man and his dummy. When it came time for The Twilight Zone to tell its own ventriloquist story, Serling took what he'd learned from The Glass Eye and Dead of Night and crafted what has become the most iconic story of its kind. Serling's adaptation employs the ambiguous nightmare logic that all episodes of The Twilight Zone so perfectly encapsulate. There's a particular sequence in which Jerry, after stuffing Willie in a trunk backstage, exits through a back alley behind the club one night. Hey, dreams, Willie. Your next booking is in a fireplace. As he shuffles down the seemingly endless alleyway, Willie's voice echoes from the darkness around him. You're not going to leave me in a stuffy old trunk, are you? Oh, come on, old sport. I wouldn't lock you in a trunk. Jerry breaks into a run, but is stopped dead in his tracks when he sees the silhouette of his dummy up ahead. He turns to escape, but a cacophony of Willie's mocking laugh follows him through the shadows. Didn't you forget, <laughs> Willie? <laughs> The scene is pure horror, even now, 56 years after it first aired, 
the dummy is just as terrifying as ever. And the episode's final shock, a terrifying reversal of roles between Jerry and Willie, is one that's sure to make you think twice the next time you see a man with a strange wooden puppet in his lap. The visceral horrors of The Living Doll and The Dummy make these episodes instant horror classics, but where The Twilight Zone really shines is in the field of psychological horror, presenting the viewer with scenarios that go beyond the physical to terrorize the mind. In the years after the First World War, a man named David Ellington, seeking shelter from a storm, comes upon a remote monastery of monks residing in a vast gothic castle. He collapses from exhaustion, and the monks take him in. That night, he hears a strange, wailing cry coming from somewhere deep within the castle. When Ellington investigates, he finds a man imprisoned behind a thick cell door. The man begs to be freed, but the monks insist that the prisoner is not a man at all. He's the devil. Unconvinced by the monks and persuaded by the seemingly helpless victim, he frees the prisoner, who makes a shocking transformation before his eyes and disappears into the night. Soon after, the chaos of World War II explodes around the globe, an event so horrifying only the devil himself could be to blame. Ellington, determined to right his mistake, vows to recapture the devil, and he does, of course. But as the episode comes to a close, we find an elderly Ellington instructing his housekeeper to keep a locked door closed. The dangerous man inside should never be freed, he tells her. He is, of course, the devil. But the housekeeper, hearing his howls, is unconvinced. If this story sounds familiar to you, maybe you recognize it as the plot of the now controversial Hulu series Castle Rock. The J.J. Abrams-produced show borrows quite a lot from The Howling Man, a 1960 episode of The Twilight Zone written by Charles Beaumont. The episode presents a frightening philosophical question. Would you risk allowing an innocent man to suffer if told his freedom would cause the suffering of millions? Could you live with yourself if you made the wrong choice? Upon witnessing the transformation, one of the monks leans down to a frightened Ellington and says, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night, and you'll know, Mr. Ellington, whom you have turned loose. H.P. Lovecraft famously said that the oldest and strongest emotion is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown, and Rod Serling agreed. He said that, quote, the worst fear of all is the fear of the unknown working on you, which you cannot share with others, unquote. In 1959, when Rod Serling wrote the episode titled, And When the Sky Was Opened, Space Was Still the Unknown. Serling's script, loosely based on a story by Richard Matheson, tells the tale of the first manned space mission, carried out by three American astronauts. They return to Earth, but something is wrong. As the episode goes on, the men begin to disappear, and by this I don't mean that they go missing, but that they actually cease to exist, and nobody around them seems to remember that they ever existed at all. 
The episode aired right in the middle of the space race, in the years before the first manned mission by the Soviets, so at the time, space was still the ultimate unknown. It really is something we still consider unknown today, despite all of our advances in technology and exploration, which is why the episode remains impactful and relevant. It expressed what I like to call existential cosmic horror, the idea that something out there in the cosmos can affect our reality here on Earth. It almost feels like the episode is anti-space exploration in many ways, hinting that man might not be meant to leave Earth. Maybe the unknown is supposed to stay unknown. These concepts have been used and reused by many sci-fi horror stories over the years. Films like Event Horizon and Alien use the vast unknown of space as a catalyst for the horrors the main characters would endure, be it dangerous extraterrestrials like an alien, or a dimension not far from hell itself in Event Horizon. More recently, I see the concept of some cosmic, otherworldly force affecting our reality utilized in Alex Garland's incredible film Annihilation, based on a book by Jeff Vandermeer, a film I'd highly recommend to anyone interested in horror that is deeply philosophical in nature. Another read of the episode deals with fate, and the idea that fate would work against mankind to correct its own mistakes. In this case, the three astronauts were never meant to return to Earth, so when they did, something had to fix that error. This is, of course, the basis for the popular Final Destination films, which add the touch of graphic death scenes to the equation, as the characters' horrific ends finally catch up with them after avoiding such a tragedy earlier in the film. And When the Sky Was Opened is a haunting episode, one that ponders the nature of fate and reality, toying with the concept that our reality could change without us ever even knowing or remembering it. Maybe early space missions like the one of the three astronauts really did happen, ones where something went horribly wrong. Maybe we only remember the ones that went right. Often, episodes of The Twilight Zone serve as glimpses into realities that seem to exist on their own plane outside of our world. They end without clear resolution, forcing us to think about the fate of these characters after the credits roll. One such reality is presented in what is arguably the most iconic episode in the history of the series. It's one that you'll find at the top of many best episodes lists online. Serling introduces us to a place called Peaksville, and a boy named Anthony Fremont, whose unexplained, reality-bending powers have the entire town trembling in terror, begging for Anthony's approval, fearing he'll send them away to the Cornfield, an unidentified place from which no one returns. What makes the episode, titled It's a Good Life, so impactful is not Anthony, but the portrayal of the townspeople he so viciously controls. Even a negative thought is enough to be sent to the cornfield. Jerome Bixby, who wrote the original short story that would become the basis for Serling's script, wasn't quite sure where he got the idea for It's a Good Life, claiming that he simply wrote the story after a sleepless night one weekend in 1953. But it's hard not to look at a narrative about terrified people living under the control of an unstable, unknown power and make some assumptions about what his story is trying to say. 
Interpretations can range from the personal to the political, and that's exactly what makes It's a Good Life so timeless. Is it an allegory of dictatorship or amusing on the existential difficulties of parenthood? We really don't know. And I think that's part of what makes It's a Good Life so good. And I think you'd better agree, otherwise Anthony might hear you and you know what happens when Anthony hears something he doesn't like. The Twilight Zone is a show so well-crafted and impactful, I could easily pick apart each and every episode to show you the influence of Serling's masterpiece and what it has done for horror entertainment over the years. I could talk about the episode Little Girl Lost, in which a portal to another dimension opens in a young girl's bedroom, similar to the one you'd find in 1982's Poltergeist. Or I could discuss the parallels between Beaumont's episode Perchance to Dream, about a man who fears his dreams will kill him, and Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Even outside of specific references, certain moments, situations, or stories are so definitively Twilight Zone-esque. The aesthetics and themes of the show being so unique and definitive, they can be quickly identified by even casual viewers of the show. To give an example, I was once at a big horror convention being held in a large hotel where I had a room for the weekend. I'd gone upstairs to my room to grab something, and when I headed back down the hallway towards the elevator, it was empty and silent. I pushed the button and stood there waiting, alone. When the doors finally opened, standing in front of me was that classic caricature of a red-faced, horned devil. Of course, it was just another con-goer in an elaborate cosplay, but I immediately picture Serling's iconic monologue over the moment, introducing a story about a man about to take an elevator ride he would not soon forget. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. I also felt this way about Jordan Peele's landmark horror film Get Out. While wholly original in its story, I could easily picture a condensed version of the film as the basis for a Twilight Zone episode. It had everything a classic would need, paranoia, dangerous pseudoscience, and powerful social commentary throughout. It seems the comparison is not lost on Peel and the higher-ups at CBS, who've hired him to serve as a host on an upcoming reboot of the series. As a little bit of a side note, I wanted to mention that I'm extremely excited to see what they do with this new series, and I hope that it'll remain true to Rod Serling's vision instead of serving as a reaction to or a knockoff of Black Mirror. Which is great in its own right, but I feel as though The Twilight Zone tackled much deeper, more psychological, societal issues and stories than Black Mirror, which I feel can sometimes be a little bit literal or even shallow in its criticism of social media and cell phones, whereas The Twilight Zone presented us with deeper, more troubling questions than whether or not you should delete your Twitter account. Of course, I'm generalizing here, but I hope that The Twilight Zone brings something new to the table that Black Mirror hasn't already covered time and time again. Its revival may seem like yet another case of this whole late sequel thing where old properties are getting sequels now just to sort of capitalize on the nostalgia, but I actually believe that now is the perfect time for The Twilight Zone to return. The show emerged at a time when social commentary on television was almost non-existent. It said the things that people were afraid to say. I feel as though right now social commentary on television has gone flat. How many times can the same SNL Trump joke really be funny? It's almost oversaturation of weak social commentary, whereas the Twilight Zone provided something so much deeper. 
The horrors of the Twilight Zone seem, to me, to be exactly what entertainment is missing right now. In an age of social and political hysteria not far off from the one that birthed the series. With its stark black and white visuals and haunting narratives, The Twilight Zone is a series that continues to influence some of the most important genre-defining horror films today. When Mike Wallace implied that Rod Serling was done writing anything important for television, maybe he was right, because The Twilight Zone would become so much more than an important television show. It became one of the most influential and significant works of art in the history of American culture. It changed the game and showed that horror was so much more than monster movies and flying saucer flicks, and without it, intelligent genre filmmaking as we know it probably wouldn't exist at all. For that, the whole world owes Rod Serling a debt of gratitude. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. And that's it for this installment of the Nightwire Horror Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd recommend Mark Scott Zakri's book, The Twilight Zone Companion, which served as one of my main research sources on this episode. Thanks for listening to Nightwire. Make sure to subscribe for more horror podcasts like this one, and follow me on Instagram, at Nightwire Podcast, to stay up to date. This is your host, Blake, signing off. <laughs>